is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's now time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by Hillsdale College. And on This Day in History, a largely unknown Polish man who was significantly responsible for one of the greatest victories in one of the greatest battles of the 21st century, was martyred in his homeland of Poland before he could see the victory there and elsewhere with his own eyes. The story brought to us by the terrific film Messenger of Truth, which is narrated by Martin Sheen. And you'll also hear from former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich and his documentary Nine Days That Changed the World. Kontrola rzeczywiście była już totalna. To, to, to czytelnik czy słuchacz zachodni zrozumie z, z lektury Orwella roku 1984. So basically from the end of the 18th century up to the 1950s, every 30 years the nation was losing its best people who were being killed, who were being deported, who were being exterminated. So the memory of this is extremely deep in the nation. Here's Newt Gingrich and author George Weigel. August 1944, the Polish underground's attempt to liberate Poland from German occupation, known as the Warsaw Uprising, is crushed. Over 200,000 Poles die. It is very difficult for Americans to imagine uh, the suffering of Poland during the Second World War. One-fifth of the Polish population died between 1939 began to describe the Second World War as the war we lost twice. First in 1939 to the Germans, and then in 1945 to the Soviet Union. Here's Martin Sheen. At the Yalta Conference in 1945, Prime Minister Churchill and President Roosevelt handed Poland over to General Secretary Joseph Stalin, believing his promise to operate Poland on a broader democratic basis. He didn't. Under Stalin, the communists controlled everything. The media, wages, food prices, and dissension with the government, not tolerated. Faith, not tolerated. I remember that in office of my parents, for example, it was a pharmacy. There was always a crucifix hanging on the wall. And I remember that one day, the official representatives of the regime went to my father and said, you have to uh, take it off. And finally, he had to do it. Poland has always been a pawn of the world, whether it's Russia or Western Europe, the United States. It's always been a tradable entity. You know, here, Stalin, we'll give you Poland. You give us two players to be named later. the Polish people weren't going to lay down and take being brutalized pawns anymore. 
My father served in World War II with a free Polish officer. And a Polish officer said to him one time, I'm glad that your President Roosevelt talks about four freedoms. It's very inspiring. But Poland's really never needed more than two, freedom from Russia and freedom from Germany. Of Poland's 38 million people, 98% were Catholic. So the church had a special responsibility to stand for justice that they would either choose to take up or abdicate. This is the story of one Polish priest, a priest who chose what Christians call the narrower path in life, the narrower path that history had proven to be a harrowing one in his country. An estimated 3,000 Catholic priests were killed by the Nazis during this time, but he would face their next devil their next tyrant, the Soviets. His name? Father Jerzy Papiushko. Papiushko grew up in the countryside and as a young man walked two miles to mass every morning to serve as an altar boy. He was accepted into the seminary in 1965. One year later, he was sent with his fellow classmates to a communist military base for their compulsory two years in the army. And the seminarians were separated from the rest of the cadets. Bible study and prayer were forbidden. But that wasn't going to stop this 18-year-old with a clear calling. He openly defied them. He openly prayed the rosary. That's what Papiusko was like when he was ordered to put away his prayer book, to stop praying or to put away his rosary or holy pendant. I think most seminarians might have followed orders, but he protested out loud and with a clear message. He was ordered to stand at attention, sometimes all night long, sometimes in the rain and snow, and often barefoot. And this was the reason why, using the military jargon, they put the screws to him. It was like that until he left. And when we come back, more about the story of Father Jerzy Papayushko, who was martyred on this day in history in 1984. This is Our American Stories, and it's our This Day in History segment. 
And this one's an hour, folks, because it's such an important story. And it's brought to us, as always, by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, Father Jerzy Papayushko is martyred in 1984, and we celebrate his life here. And by the way, just as a side note, our friend, one of the producers of the documentary Nine Days That Changed the World, told us that of all Polish clergy at the time, 10% were actively snitching to the Soviet secret police. And by the way, that's probably true of almost every walk in Polish life. Spies inside families, spies inside the church, Spies everywhere. It's unimaginable to live a life like that, wondering whom you can, in whom you can place your trust and whom you can't. Let's go back to this story of the Polish priest who was martyred and killed in battle, a spiritual battle versus the Soviet Union for his country's freedom from this tyranny. And you'll hear how he died later. But when we left off, the then 18-year-old was a one-of-a-kind seminarian, openly defying the Soviet army by praying publicly, something they forbade. But 14 years later, in 1979, he was one of three million Poles in this audience. A crowd that chants, We want God. We want God. We want God. The presider you're hearing from, the Polish Pope, the first non-Italian Pope in over 500 years, the only Polish Pope in history, Pope John Paul II, back in his home country for the first time as Pope, in Victory Square in Warsaw, with three million of his brothers and sisters at the Mass. The Soviet police so terrified that they stationed 67,000 police officers there, 20,000 of them undercover, and stationed 1,000 hidden microphones to catch traitors to their cause. People started to sing Christus Vincit, Christus Regnat, Christus Imperat, a well-known song which says that the Christ wins and the Christ reigns. And suddenly we have in Polish television mass being celebrated and the Pope is saying this. There's no aspect of a life where Christ cannot enter. And the people burst out in applause. Inspired and experiencing their strength of numbers visibly for the first time, the revolution takes shape. A peaceful strike begins. In August of 1980, Lech Wałęsa, an unemployed electrician who had earlier joined illegal trade unions to protest worker conditions, scales the walls of the Gdansk shipyard to demand fair wages and to denounce the firing of a shipyard crane operator, Anna Valentinovic. Just days later, 10,000 workers at the Warsaw steel mill shut down the machinery and locked themselves inside the gates. The first Sunday of the strike, three workers snuck out of the mill 
and went to see Cardinal Stefan Byshynski with an unusual request. They asked for a priest to enter the striking mill and say mass. The Cardinal saw an opportunity here he had been waiting for. The gospel heard inside the hollowed walls of communist power, the steel mill. And he knew just the man for the job, Father Jerzy Papiushko, only 33 years old. The gate opens and he's literally sucked into this, the steel mill crowd. The guys bring him inside and then they start to applaud. And he looks around thinking to himself, who are they applauding for? You know, I'm just a priest. I'm just here to say mass. A priest had never, ever entered the steel mill grounds. This was unimaginable. Once I tried to organize a Catholic group here for the young workers, but I was ridiculed. This was a communist fortress that only served the communists. That is how the totalitarian regime saw it. On that same day in Gdansk, Lech Wałęsa signed an agreement legalizing the first free trade union in a communist country. It was called Solidarity. For months, nothing had left the factories of Poland. With pressure from Russia to get them back to work and unwilling or unable to resort to violence, the communist government caved to the strikers' demands. In front of the world press, the Solidarity Agreement removed the Communist Party's control over the industrial enterprise, increased the minimum wage, and abolished censorship throughout the country. Poland was trying to break free, and 1980 was such an attempt. It was successful in the sense that 10 million people joined Solidarity. But if you think about it, families, wives, children, you need to multiply that by two or three. This no longer means 10 million members, but 20 or 30 million. So pretty much all the Poles, the whole nation. And Father Jersey would become their chaplain. They asked him to design a flag that would help them show the permanence of the union at the steel mill. And he was overjoyed. I mean, first being asked to be their chaplain, he finally had a family that was his and he was responsible for. His pastor said, go for it. What started that morning as a simple procession of the steel mill's solidarity flag to Father Jersey's church morphed into a massive crowd control nightmare that the government had not sanctioned. 20,000 people showed up at this little church in Warsaw, and the police had no idea it was going to happen. There was no permits. It completely freaked them out. They didn't have enough men to ask for IDs. The churchyard was full. Even the pastor of the church was a little shocked, saying, can you get more of the people inside the church so we don't cause a ruckus? It just didn't work. The door of freedom had opened a crack. And now, 38 million Poles wanted to barge through. And by the way, at the beginning of this segment, you heard from Pope John Paul II's epic mass in Warsaw's Victory Square that Father Jersey and three million Poles attended. And it was during his first return trip to Poland, and that's Pope John Paul II, 
that Newt Gingrich's documentary called The Nine Days That Changed the World captured. Well, that visit inspired a nation to see the power within themselves, within each other, and through their God to assert their freedom. First time I watched that documentary, I was in the Minneapolis airport. And my friend Vince Haley had sent me the documentary and he had told me there was some remarkable footage inside it. And I was sitting alone waiting for a flight to Minneapolis. And towards the middle of that documentary, when Pope John Paul II goes into Victory Square, you're watching millions of people suddenly and spontaneously start to chant in Polish, we want God. And they kept chanting it and chanting it. And, well... The Pope did something beautiful. He just wouldn't speak. And he had a prepared homily. He had a prepared message. And I'm not Catholic. I was a young Christian at the time. And as it continued, I just started crying. Because you could tell the the fervent, fervent prayer that the people of Poland had actually been able to chant for the first time in their lives publicly and in a large group. And again, 90% Catholic, this this country, even more. And that's the power of storytelling, folks, and of faith and courage. Our friend Vince Haley also told us that Pope John Paul II himself was flying home from those nine days that changed the world in Poland. It hit him how he had left the Polish clergy in a precarious and vulnerable position. He woke up sleeping giant. The very soul of the Polish people had been awakened. And those clergy would be on the front lines, the foot soldiers, of any resulting retribution from the Soviet Union. It was a risk, but a risk worth taking. This is Lee Habib, and when we continue, the story of Father Jerzy, Jerzy Papayushko, who was martyred in 1984 on this day in history. our American stories and back to our This Day in History segment we now return to the life story of Father Jerzy Papayushko the Catholic priest in Poland who at 33 years old became the chaplain of the Labor Union Solidarity, the movement that led the nation's fight for freedom from the Soviet regime To the Kremlin Solidarity was ideological suicide, and there was a danger of it spreading like a virus throughout the Soviet bloc. They hastily dismissed the civilian government and installed Army General Wojciech Jaroselski, putting the army in control. That was the first sign that the regime was willing to use force, uh, to, to use force to preserve communism. 
Ogłaszam, że w dniu dzisiejszym I declare that today the Military Council of National Salvation has been formed. In accordance with the Constitution, the State Council has imposed martial law all over the country. On December 13, 1981, Jaroszewski declared war on the Polish people. Everything was shut down. Travel, communication, schools, factories, everything. Suddenly, just shortly after midnight, the telexes stopped, yeah, mid-sentence. And then we really knew something had happened, yeah? If you cut off all communication with the outside world, you know something's happening. That night, 500,000 soldiers of the Polish People's Army were mobilized. They moved in and blockaded every city. They raided the homes of Solidarity leaders and dragged them from their beds. Every Solidarity office throughout the country was broken into and ransacked. By the end of the evening, 5,000 people had been arrested without cause. In the end, more than 90 people were killed and hundreds more had been wounded. In 12 short hours, Jaroszewski's government erased any trace that Solidarity ever existed. It left the Catholic Church remaining as the one civic institution with any semblance of power left. And Uroselsky, the military ruler, wasted no time going after it. He appointed hardliners to every key position in the government. An important assignment was General Cheswolf Kishak, who was named Minister of Internal Affairs, the office that controlled the secret police, and a clandestine unit called Department 4, whose sole mandate was to spy on every church in Poland. But there were only two that they were really, really concerned about in 1980. One was St. Bridget's in Gdansk, because of Lech Wałęsa and Father Jankowski, his confessor. The one that they were even more concerned about was closer to home base in Warsaw, and that was St. Stanislaus Kotzka Church and Father Jerzy Papiszko. February 28th, 1982. Father Jersey presides over his first mass for the Fatherland, a monthly celebration of Polish national unity that was about to become a monster, a spiritual monster under his stewardship, one that fueled the flame of the movement, a monster that the regime couldn't control. The government, they knew they were not able to stop people from coming to the mass. At this point, that was impossible. There were 10,000 people at almost every mass, many traveling from across Poland to hear Father Jersey's homilies, like this first one. Today, I would like to talk, or rather, address the Holy Father in the form of a letter. I hope the penal code does not contain any penalties for writing a letter to the Holy Father. During the enslavement of our nation, you were and continue to be the one who strengthens in us the hope for the victory of good over evil. Love over violence, truth 
over falsehood. Any anti-state pronouncement was punishable by death. So he could be killed by, by military court at any time for what he said. All of his homilies, like this first one, were laden with anti-regime proclamations. Though they wouldn't kill him, at least not yet. But they did begin investigating him. He is the most dangerous man in Poland. All the way from Moscow, through Warsaw, to East Berlin. The entire communist system was afraid of Father Jerzy Popieluszko. And his only weapon was the truth. Maybe 90% of those people attending the Mass, they were Catholics. But some of them must be like, like myself, yeah? Um, so agnostic, atheist. And what was the reason we were coming? The reason was quite simple. There we were free, safe, and not afraid of anything. And we were fighting for the independent Poland. And we knew that uh, Father Jerzy Popiełusko is one of us. And we knew that he loves our country as we love our country. And that he is not afraid. Here's Father Jersey on what he thought they as a community got from the masses. Here, people pour out their grief, their pain. They pour it out in prayer, in spontaneous singing, and in silence, which is also a great prayer. That experience of community silence and discipline. And this is probably our main objective, that the suffering which people experience every day, at work, in prisons, on the streets, that this suffering is not wasted. The role of the priest is to direct, through a holy mass, this suffering of the people towards God. And then, Radio Free Europe, a U.S. group financially backed by the government, began illegally broadcasting his sermons, all of them, transforming Father Jersey, a priest, into a celebrity. This communist system is not equipped for celebrity. Yeah? It can't handle celebrity. That was the problem with Proenza in many ways. He'd become a celebrity and dangerous. And Poppy Wushko now was now becoming the great celebrity. And it was, it was done through this conduit, you know, this, this Western radio stations rebroadcasting his sermons. And suddenly he wasn't just reaching 10,000 people, he was reaching millions. It wouldn't be tolerated. And by the way, when our narrator for our This Day in History pieces was having dinner with a Polish friend, he told him that he was doing a story on some guy named Father Jerzy Papayushko. And the friend said, quote, I cried when I learned that he died. And he had never met the man, but he knew the impact he had on his people, the Polish people. When we come back, the final chapter in the life of Father Jerzy Papayushko, 
who was martyred in 1984 and whose life is celebrated in the documentary Messenger of Truth, which you're hearing a good part of here in this hour. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we now return to the final portion of our celebration of Father Jerzy Papayushko's life, the Catholic priest who, along with Pope John Paul II, provided spiritual fuel to the Polish people in their epic struggle for freedom from the Soviet Union. When we left off, Father Jerzy had become a celebrity, and this would become a problem. The first attack on Father Jersey's life occurred in December of 1982 when the secret police broke his window with a brick that had a bomb strapped to it. From that day forward, this 35-year-old priest would require a bodyguard with him at all times. He would need it when they tried to throw him off a fast-moving train. On September 9th, an article appeared in the Russian newspaper Isvestia, railing against the militant Father Papiusko, saying his sermons so reek with hatred for socialism that they are more like anti-Bolshevik pamphlets than proper church sermons. For the first time, the Russians had mentioned Father Jersey by name. This was a clear sign from Moscow that if Dyarizelsky's government couldn't handle this problem, then they would find someone who could. And that's when everyone panicked. Everyone started to panic. Here's the entrance in Father Jersey's journal at this time. Difficult to collect thoughts. A mental grinding mill. On April 11th, I was interrogated for the 11th time. The secret police said I could get 38 years in prison. Here's the curator of his archives, speaking through a translator. Later, Father Yerge's situation got worse. He received many anonymous letters with foul language. They once wrote him a letter saying that they'd crucify him and cut his throat. He read the letters during the Mass. I am addressing all those who recently have been threatening me in their letters with, I quote, a bullet in the head, a cut throat, or being hanged on the cross. Mieli również odwagę 
Since they are capable of such threats, I also urge them to have the courage to sign their letters, instead of cowardly sending them anonymously or providing fake addresses. October 19th, 1984. Father Jersey and his driver are kidnapped by the secret police. His driver escapes by rolling out of the speeding car. Father Jersey wouldn't. Nine days later, a record crowd shows up for Father Jersey's mass for the fatherland. 50,000 people, but still no Father Jersey. During the homily, they played a recording of the last homily he delivered. God instilled in man the desire for the truth. This is why man thirsts for the truth and despises falsehood. Truth, like justice, is connected to love, and love has a price. Truth always unites people. It moves them. The weight of truth frightens and unmasks lies. Lies of little people, people who are scared. The continuous battle against truth had gone on for ages. But truth is immortal, and lies die a quick death. Hence comes the saying, as told by Cardinal Stefan Wazinski, one needs only a few people to tell the truth. Christ had chosen but a few to declare truth. Eleven days later, Father Jersey's body appears in the waters of a lagoon. It was a message to Pauls, yeah? Keep your mouth shut. You are here, and what's more, you are staying here. Together with us, together with Soviet army, and with your dad, Popievusko. He's dead. And you, you can be also dead. Next day, shut up. They wouldn't. We'll repeat three times this heroic. This is heroism, and forgive us our sins, as we do those who trespass against us. Once more, and forgive us our sins, as we do those who trespass against us. Once more. The reaction of the tens and hundreds of thousands of people who who followed his words and followed his sermons. They didn't do anything. They did not set fires. They did not kill Polish police or, or attack military bases. They didn't run into the streets screaming into guns and automatic weapons that were being trained on. They didn't do that. They did what Papiuszko told them to do, which was to keep your dignity, remain silent, and don't give up. Here's Father Jersey's brother, Joseph, speaking through a translator. At first I was going to Bialystok to identify the body. 
I could stomach it because I worked in a hospital and an ambulance. No one from our family would have known that it was him. He was so massacred. His lips were so beaten they looked like jelly. I noticed a birthmark on him, though, and that's how I knew he was my brother. On November 3, 1984, over one million people came to his church. With one voice, they said, We are here, Father Jersey, and we hurt you. The leader of solidarity, Lekwalensa, addresses the masses. Rest in peace, Father Jersey. Solidarity is alive because you gave your life for it. Solidarity would win because he gave his life for it. In 1989, Poland had its first free democratic elections, and Solidarity won the majority of seats in the government, encouraging the collapse of the Berlin Wall. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961 to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody one who wants to leave. Dancing everywhere, East and West joining in a celebration of a united future. And the utter collapse of the Iron Curtain. In the end, 28 countries, from East Germany to Russia, held open democratic elections, setting one billion people on the path to freedom. But it all started in Poland. It all started in Warsaw, in a rather unremarkable church, with a young priest that gave his life for his faith, for his friends, and for his country. On June 6th, 2010, Father Jerzy Papiuszko was beatified by the Catholic Church, the last step before sainthood. 350,000 people were in attendance for the celebration. One final word from Father Jerzy. It seems to me that in the history of the Church, in the history of Christianity. There are many examples showing to what extent you have to defend the truth. You have to defend it to the end. Jesus Christ sacrificed his life in order to announce his divine truth. Likewise, the apostles sacrificed their lives. Therefore, the role of the priest is to proclaim the truth and suffer for the truth. If necessary, even to die for the truth. Such examples are plenty in Christianity. And from these examples, we should draw conclusions for ourselves. Father Jersey paid the ultimate price for his faith. He laid down his life for his friends as his God had taught him. His body is buried in front of his church in Warsaw, and some 18 million people have visited his burial grounds and have been moved. 
And one of those men was the executive producer of The Messenger of Truth, the movie you heard so much from, that man, Gary Chartrand. Visiting the site actually led him to make the movie. And there, Father Jersey lies beneath big field stones that are chained together like rosary beads, alluding to the stones and chains he was drowned with. What a sight to be seen. What a story that everyone needs to know. The story of Father Jersey Papayushko. This day in history, he was martyred in 1984. This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything on this show, but especially love, family, and developing healthy relationships from the start. We have a regular marriage segment, and now we have, thanks to our guest, a regular parenting segment. And Dr. Rose Fernandez-Stein, known to her patients as Dr. Rose and to us, has been a practicing pediatrician for 23 years and a director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic, in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16 years. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for an astounding 5,000 children. She's also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. Dr. Rose, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm so pleased to be able to share these stories. You bet. And, and this is for all the parents listening. What we're trying to do is show you situations and, and sort of prototypes of behavior or misbehavior of kids and how we can change that behavior, no matter what the other and external circumstances, how we can best work within the, 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 the children that are given us, how we can move behavior and improve behavior. And let's talk a bit about Anna if we can, Dr. Rose. Tell us about how you found Anna uh, at your clinic. Well, Anna has been com- had been coming to the clinic uh, ever since she was born, and I knew this family pretty well because the mom uh, was a person who would have lots of excuses. She would have excuses on why she didn't show up to her appointments. Uh, she had excuses on why... Uh, her child was sort of overweight or wasn't doing well at school. She just had an excuse for everything. And the excuses were quite valid. Uh, but here was Anna now. And mom booked an appointment with Anna because the teachers really got on, on this mom's case because even though Anna was in third grade, she was hardly working at a kindergarten level. You see, Anna didn't even... Uh, looked like she could pick up a pencil. When she picked up the pencil, she just sort of held it there in the hand, and and she didn't have the strength to be able to write and to be able to to uh, imprint whatever she wanted to to whatever letter she was told to write. So it looked like her hand wasn't working well, but also she wasn't able to speak clearly. So nobody understood what Anna was trying to say. 
So because of that, uh, she was left for a child who had cognitive delay and maybe developmental delay. And so she brings her in because the teachers are giving her a hard time and says, what am I supposed to do? The teachers can't, can't are telling me that she's like a kindergartner and that I'm supposed to get an IEP uh, and a teacher uh, and have special uh, method to teach her. And I looked over at Anna and I realized I don't really see a reason that Anna can't learn. I knew her when she was born. She's been coming to me for a while. I'm not understanding what would be wrong with her brain. She walked at the right time. She spoke at the right time. She had good strength. So unless there's something wrong with her brain and she's regressing, there shouldn't really be a diagnosis that would explain her not being able to talk now and not being able to do things with her hands properly. I also asked mom, uh, is she able to do any chores at home? And so if any chores were beyond her uh, interest or uh, were a little bit more difficult for her, Anna would just start crying and sit there and wallow in self-pity because she wasn't able to do it. And that's where I really started thinking that uh, Anna's problems were not muscular, were not neuromuscular, were not really developmental. But what we had was a young girl who perhaps was, once again, sort of a little lazy, uh, but also very, very smart and wanting to get around the work that she would have to do in life. And so this is, this is the girl that I had in front of me, and she was indeed reading at a pre-kindergarten level, not even able to recognize letters, but grade by grade she had been passed, and now she's in third grade. And, and yeah, and, and how does she get to third grade? I mean, just as a side note, Dr. Rose, how does that happen? Well, um, I guess she was that child that was left behind through the whole no child left behind, uh, but because she 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 needed too much time and she needed too much effort for her to ever be restored, and by the time they figured out that she was that far behind, nobody was able to give her the kind of time and attention that she needed to to uh, be able to fill that gap. And now here's a third grader who's hardly speaking, who's not reading, and who's not able to write or hold a pencil. Well, and in my own family, uh, I've had to come to grips with one particular uh, part of my family where a couple of the kids just, the, the adults were out to lunch. One was chasing a drug dealer and the other was chasing the boyfriend chasing the drug dealer. And the kids were left to parent themselves. And everybody thought there was a problem with the kids, but they were home alone all day. No one asked them to, to, to do anything. No one put any challenges before them. Nobody taught them to read, to think. And, you know, what chance do you have under that circumstance? I'm not saying, by the way, that's Anna's. And I'm looking forward, uh, Dr. Rose, on the other side of this break, uh, digging in at what you did. We've got the diagnosis. Uh, well, not a diagnosis, but we know there's a problem that may not be what we would call a, a mental problem. Uh, we have what we believe or some kind of impairment. We have what we think is a behavioral problem. When we come back, we're going to get on the other side of Anna's story and figure out how Dr. Rose helped Anna and her parent and her mom in this very, very tough situation. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. More with Dr. Rose when we come back.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're back with Dr. Rose, and we're back with the story of Anna. And during the break, Dr. Rose and I were just talking about, you know, what happens to kids who, if they don't have a parent or if they have a parent who doesn't know what they're doing, I mean, a social worker can't take care of this problem. The government can't take care of this problem. There's no one accountable if there's not a real, active, knowledgeable parent. And to which you said what, Dr. Rose? If the buck does not stop with one person, and if it stops nowhere, that's where the children are going to end up, nowhere. And that was what was happening with Anna, because her mom was completely lost on how to raise this child, because of many, many reasons. She, she was an immigrant, uh, and so she didn't have a, a good a grasp of the language. But at the same time, her, her husband had beaten her severely many times and had uh, spoken to her so poorly and so abusively that she didn't, that mom didn't think that she could do this job. And so that's why she became a woman of many excuses. And so, so it was like Anna was channeling her mom yeah. and saying, I can't do things either. I have excuses. You see, I can't talk. I have an excuse. I can't use my hands. And therein was the problem. And so I asked the mom to have the teachers call me. And I, I figured, I'll have to dig into this problem. And so one after the other, the teachers came on the line and they told me about a little girl who would cry every time they were, that they told her to do something, and no, there was no way that she could do anything, and maybe she needed medication, or maybe she just needed to be uh, always in kindergarten, and, and none of these things seemed to fit. And finally, one of the teachers uh, was a little more savvy, and she said, you know, I think Anna can do the things that we're asking her to do sometimes, but she falls back on saying, I can't. I can't. And one, at one point, she was doing a little bit more, and then she realized that I was watching her, and then she reverted back to, I can't. And I said, I think you have the dog by the tail right there. we got to flip around the I can't attitude to the I can. And so that's where we started working on Anna when Mom came in the next time. And I said, do you know the difference between I can't and I can, I said, it's a T. One little letter stands between you being able to do it and you're not being able to do it. And, Mom, we're going to stop with the excuses. You've been giving your daughter an excuse every day because she watches you and she knows that you have many excuses, and a lot of them are well-earned. But we're going to have to stop having excuses, and we're just going to have to start to have a vision of a work ethic and a future for this child. And that's when Mom sort of uh, lifted up her shoulders, and she decided that she was going to stop with the excuses, and she was going to start showing up to the appointments, and she was going to take the responsibility of Anna into her hands. And my goodness, that made such an effort. She decided that she was going to drive to my clinic and sit there during the day and do whatever it took so that we could get things done and that I was going to give her work. She, In fact, this is what makes me so proud of this mom. She doesn't know English. I gave her a, a book on how to teach her how to read, and I said, you're going to teach yourself how to read, and you're going to teach yourself some English, so you're going to pull both of yourselves 
out of this hole because your daughter's life depends on it. She does not have to be illiterate. You might be somewhat illiterate because you came to this country when you were older, but she doesn't have to. And she can know English and Spanish, and all you have to do is work hard at it. So I gave her, uh, as a gift, a uh, Noah Webster's reading primer. And I said, this is yours. You're going to get yourself an English-Spanish dictionary, and you're going to figure out these words. And once she understands how to read little by little phonetically, you're going to make her write those words until her little hand becomes more adept at holding that pencil. And the next thing that you're going to do is you're going to give her chores. First, you're going to give her chores that are reflective of a four-year-old and then a five-year-old. And then you're going to look for six- and seven-year-olds up until we get to her age bracket. You know, Anna today is in fifth grade. Her teacher told her, well, you're not reading quite at a fifth-grade level yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah? You should have seen the Anna that was coming to me about a year and a half ago. And my, my daughter, who leads our after-school program, to which Anna's mom takes her devotedly every week. And she was telling me, you know your, your patient Anna She's pretty smart. She's able to read pretty well out loud. She's a good builder with her hands, so she makes very interesting things with her hands, and they're doing crafts and all kinds of things. And I said, my Anna, I know that mom is so proud of her. We took the I can't, and we turned it into an I can. And mom understands that she can too, and she actually now understands English pretty well, well enough to talk to the teachers and she also understand that it, it, the power is in her hands to lead this child's life. And by the way, when you were talking about the mom, I was thinking just what actually happened, which is you were actually che- teaching in very many ways to kids. I mean, grown-ups can have kid deficits too and, and not really know how to deal with setbacks and pile up the excuses. And in the end, you, the, the, the service you provided, Dr. Rose, to the mom wasn't just to help the mom raise her child. It was to help the mom raise herself. That's right. And she was no longer self-pitying on herself and saying, I have an abusive husband and I have a, a lifestyle uh, that uh, I, I think is terrible. I won't be able to get myself out of this. And she, she herself turned the I can't into the I can. And you see this mom coming in, and, and she dresses nicely. She carries herself nicely. She got her husband to come in because she, she said that she wanted for me to speak a little bit to her husband. And the last time that she came in with her husband, I said, you know, your wife deserves respect because she is a woman that has been able to pull this family out of a hole in spite of all the circumstances that she's been given. So I would like you to have eyes to see what a woman she is and never, ever be disrespectful to her again. And that mom smiled because she knew that she had earned that. And I, I, I'm hopeful that he will understand that I said that in love and not trying to put him down, but at the same time that now the key lies in him. And if some sort of, of a pattern needs to be broken, and I call those curses sometimes, because we do have curses in yep. our family tree. Yep. And I said, if, if the curse is to be broken, it lies in you, Dad. Perhaps you grew up in a home where dads were allowed to speak to their wives that way and, and push their wives around, but no more. 
Let's look at your children, and you have beautiful children, and for their lives and for their future, let's break that curse and let's break that pattern. And we shook hands, and I think that he went out putting his shoulders up and saying, okay, I can. You bet. I mean, look, in the end, we all can fall into very bad patterns from things we inherit. And without that love and those guardrails and a good coach uh, and good guidance, what the heck do people do? I've just met too many people and in too many circumstances where I go, how are they going to possibly make it? And it's not their fault in the end, uh, very often, the, the hand that is dealt folks, Dr. Rose. I know, and it's so easy to make a judgment. But, you know, in 15, 20 years, Anna would have been beyond being able to help her. Yep. And now she was able to... To, and mom was able to change the pathway and that pattern of that life so that hopefully, if not all those curses and all those patterns were broken, but a lot of the most detrimental ones have been changed forever. And Dr. Rose, in just short time here, we were talking during the break also about so many parents who can will seek all kinds of clinical help, medical help, to the point at which they have so many doctors on the tab in so many different directions to pursue, then in the end there's no accountability there either because there are 18 different decision makers. Really quickly, talk to parents who are in that situation as well. Well, and let's go back to Anna. Anna had a speech therapist. She had a, a occupational therapist to help her to write. She had a neurologist to help her uh, to figure out why she was so delayed in her motor skills. And all of these people had a different answer. And the answer was really to strengthen mom. And I'm not saying that these specialists can't give us a hand, but when we're relying time after time that each one of these specialists and the experts are going to have the answer for us, we're many times wrong. The answer lies many times within us parents yep. and us taking taking the responsibility of our children in our hands. We so appreciate you joining us and appreciate all the work you do. We're joined, as always, on our parent coaching segment, because that's what this really is. Uh, Dr. Rose Fernandez-Stein from the International Family Clinic, and she coaches parents to deal with kids of all kinds of behavioral problems. And my goodness, it ends up being, more often than not, a parent problem not a child problem. Thanks so much, Dr. Rose. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. You bet. Thanks so much. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with one of our favorite topics, Random Acts of Kindness. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org. It's a great resource, an inspiring one to share with your kids, your friends, and make sure to leave your story there. And that's what we hope to do here is you hear some good ones, populate theirs. Here's a story from Faleo, California in the San Francisco Bay Area where an unexpected act of kindness has made this teen's commute 
a heck of a lot easier. This teen had just finished his shift at night in Benicia when an officer spotted him walking home. He says he thought he was in trouble first when the officer stopped him, but then they started talking. I've been walking far distances since I was about 10. 18-year-old Jordan Duncan has been walking to work since May after his car broke down, and he won't ask for rides. I don't want to feel like I'm a burden to people, so I take the initiative to handle myself and my own ways to where I need to go from point A to point B. Duncan lives in Vallejo and works in Benicia. It's about a two-hour commute each way on foot, up and down hills, through city streets to avoid the highway. Four hours all together. I got used to the walk and, you know, it's not hard to walk. It just happened to be uh, going down industrial when I saw him walking. Benicia Police Corporal Kirk Keffer stopped Duncan last Saturday. He said, so you walk from work to Vallejo? I was like, you know, if I have no other way. At that point, I was like, well, once you jump in, I'll give you a ride home. The two got to know each other. Keffer talked about life as an officer, and Duncan shared his aspirations to be an officer with the CHP. Keffer was so impressed with the team's work ethic, he and the members of the Benicia Police Officers Association surprised Duncan at work on Monday with a new mountain bike. There's not a lot of... Uh... 18-year-olds out there that have this dedication, this work ethic, and we just wanted to make sure that he knew that how much I actually appreciated what he's doing. Duncan was shocked. You know, not all officers are bad. He's quickly learned how to handle the bike, and it cuts his travel time in half. This bike is my best friend, my best friend right here. I love this bike. Duncan is extremely grateful, and after hearing about his desire to be an officer, we're heard, we've learned that the Benicia Police Department is working to give him a ride-along in the coming weeks. And as he said, not all cops are bad. And again, you're not going to see that in the national news, maybe a nice little local feature, but never, ever in the national news, and never eight minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes, let alone two weeks of coverage. And again, we talk often here about law enforcement and the outliers and the bad cops, because there are plenty, but not nearly as many as the media would have you think. And I would bet it's less than 1% or even less than that. And now we move to Pensacola, Florida, where a Marine was honored for helping a fellow triathlete. The service our country's Marines provide on and off the battlefield isn't done for the recognition. But 19-year-old Marine Private First Class Matthew Morgan was recognized for the compassion he showed a young triathlete who lost his leg to cancer. This is what being a Marine is about. And I'm really glad that, you know, if I do anything, I, I get to help show that. Since losing his leg to bone cancer, 11-year-old Ben Baltz has been running triathlons and other athletic competitions throughout Northwest Florida. On October 7th, Baltz was running in the Sea Turtle Tri-Kids Triathlon. He was halfway through the run portion when his prosthetic leg failed and he fell. Morgan and another Marine were volunteering at a water stand nearby and ran to help. I just got there first. When I got there, he'd already, you know, thrown himself up and was continuing to try and fix his prosthetic. And I asked him, do you need help? And he looked at me and said, no, I'm going to finish. But Morgan says Baltz couldn't get his prosthesis back on. He knew he wasn't going to be able to reattach it because he was missing a screw. And I got in front of him and I said, you know, pop on. 
For the last half of the event, Morgan carried Baltz on his back, trekking across beach sand and then crossing the finish line. As fellow Marines watched, Congressman Jeff Miller presented Morgan with a medal for his achievement. Despite his act of kindness, PFC Morgan says he doesn't consider himself a hero. He was just simply doing what any other Marine would do. I was just the first Marine there. Every, every Marine says they would have done the exact same thing. Ben's story is a perfect inspiration to Marines, to everyone for that matter, and, and how he perseveres and continues on even when, you know, not everything goes his way. Boy, I'd love to get both of those guys on the air, by the way. That's just such a good story. I'd want to go longer with it. Fantastic. Next up, a teen from Salisbury Township, Pennsylvania, arrives to his first day of high school in style. A fleet of more than 16 bikers escorted Sean Mayer on the way to his first day of class. Sean has Down syndrome and has been bullied at school. So this year, a local motorcycle club picked the teen up at his house at 6 a.m. to show their support. Sean rode on the back of a bike wearing a helmet and vest and arrived at school ready to tackle the day. Just before he walked into the building, Sean high-fived his friends who all clearly have his back. About 100 bikers were in attendance. It's unbelievable the hearts that, that you guys and gals have to come out here and it really sh- truly shows what the community's all about. And last but not least, a complete stranger in Victorville, California, displays jaw-dropping generosity. 86-year-old Dale Stoner is going to change the life of eight complete strangers by paying for their full college tuition. He surprised the first two students, Ronaldo Lopez and Tenancy Vargas, with the news. This makes me feel really great inside. I was so shocked at the moment that I just started crying. With all of Dale's own kids grown, he worked hard all his life, and a large portion of his money was earned from real estate. He wanted to help others. To me, it's it's all very simple. The money is there. Uh, There's no need on my side of my my kids. And uh, so I just said, well. Dale and his wife didn't know how to pick the students, so they looked in the phone book to discover a high school. I talked to our counseling office and our two counselors and our leadership team and they pulled two names and they said these two kids are deserving. Now these two students are heading to college only focusing on their education. Dale hopes others will pay it forward after hearing about his kind gesture. I want him to see me graduate so that he knows like he didn't do this just for nothing. You bet. That kid's going to graduate. That's for sure. And one last story, and it's just personal. One of the guys who helped build our beautiful studio here, JJ, a great craftsman, really great worker with his hands. He's had some tough times. His, his wife left. She had drug problems. He's trying to raise a child by himself. And he was working for a fellow who just wasn't paying him. He's holding back his taxes. Just he worked for a bad employer. And so he finally extricates himself from that situation, and then his truck breaks down. And a worker who works with his hands without a truck My goodness, that's a tough situation. And he's sitting down on the porch with a friend of his who's hit some good times. He's a developer and he's made some money. And he's telling his friend about the truck and this and that. Next day, his buddy comes up to him, throws him some car keys to a white, brand new Ford F-150. And he says, take this. And J.J. goes, well, thanks. You know, it's about a week. 
I'll have the other car fixed. He goes, no, you don't understand. Take this. It's yours. You're a good guy. Take care. And he just walks out. And JJ just, he calls me up crying. And he said, man, people are just so generous. And they are. And this happens all the time, folks. So when folks are trying to tell you there's no good in the world, there's no God in the world, there's no love in the world, well, turn off the channel. Turn off that person. Find new people. Find new friends. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. American Stories, and October is Down Syndrome Awareness Month, and throughout this month, we'll bring you stories that will surprise you and move you. And we do this because, well, like autism, like Alzheimer's, these are things that Americans are struggling with and through as we speak, and it's by the millions. And so we bring this to you, and hopefully you can share your stories with us. But right now, let's go to our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, who brings us today's story. I mean, we all find our manhood in different ways. Some guys find their manhood just by counting their money. I mean, that's what makes them happy. Some guys find their manhood by playing with their toys. But yes, fighting has given Garrett that opportunity to prove that he is a man. Garrett Holov isn't any old fighter. He has Down Syndrome, and he goes by the nickname G-Money, or G for short. I've been like fighting for years. I love the sport, and I always love the sport. Chop, 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 chop. And he's not involved in just any old kind of fighting. He's involved in mixed martial arts, better known as MMA. Awesome. Personally, I think MMA is barbaric. People call it human cockfighting. It's violent, and there's blood all over the cage. I think people who don't know about MMA or understand MMA immediately think it's disgusting. Whether you like MMA or not, it's here to stay. MMA is no-holds-barred fighting, an extreme sport, where contestants mix the fighting techniques of wrestling and boxing, and also those of martial arts such as kickboxing, judo, and karate. Here's his father, Mitch. Garrett is very much aware that he has Down syndrome. He's aware of how it's affected his life. You know, he's, he's, he's coming with a, with a half a lunchbox to work every day, and he works as hard as anybody else. He won't quit, and every day he comes to work. But I want you always to come this way at all time, all right? No. And here's his mom, Susan. 
That first month was like, why us? Why me? Why, you know, will we ever be happy? Susan's become happy because her son is happy. What do you punch like? I punch hard as <laughs> Here's one of the people that first discovered the Hollow family story, Jen Herrera. I was a reporter for the local agency affiliate down in Miami. I remember the story aired in the 11 o'clock news that night about this great kid and his dad. And I remember getting to work the next day. People were pissed. People could not believe that a father was letting his son with Down syndrome get into MMA. Um, but usually the stories that are the most talked about are the best stories. Uh, it was no surprise when Mitch contacted me a couple of years later that the story had gone from father and son bonding time to work out and lose weight to the rights of a disabled person. In August of 2013, Garrett was supposed to have his first sanctioned fight in Florida. Supposed to have. And against this man, better known as the Cerebral Assassin. I'm David Steffen. I have mild cerebral palsy on my left side, so uh, my right side is perfectly able-bodied. Um, well, my left side is limited range of motion. Me and Garrett were supposed to fight a year ago. Um, everything was planned. Um, Florida started taking some negative um, press. Here's famed sports broadcaster Brian Gumble. Their talents aren't exceptional or noteworthy, but their disabilities are. You see, Stefan has cerebral palsy, and Holov has Down syndrome. And while they're each to be applauded for their accomplishments, the same can't be said for those who are willing and eager to see them engage in a no-holes-barred fight in a cage for the supposed enjoyment of others. Two minutes before the fight was actually going to happen, I was actually all taped up, gloved up, ready to walk out to my entrance song. They gave a cease and desist letter and told us we were not allowed to fight. Lee County, the state of Florida, have hit us with a notice to cease and desist on this fight. It was heartbreaking. I mean, it was, it was something I've never felt ever in my life. The whole thing just seems so contrived and so convoluted and I just couldn't believe that right then and there two seconds before they were gonna you know their hands were wrapped it, it just didn't make sense it didn't sit well when you see how much he loves this sport you can't imagine somebody or an entire state telling him that he can't do what he wants to do these guys have been working real hard, not just for weeks, but for months and years to get to this point and to have the state of Florida take away their rights as citizens of the state of Florida is, is the worst thing imaginable. Uh, these guys deserve to fight just like everybody else. It destroyed their dream. Um, it really did. I was going to dead it inside. No one goes as far to get to know myself or Garrett or any other fighter with disability. They see articles that just say cerebral palsy and Down syndrome set to fight. So when people read that, they get scared. <laughs> Thanks everybody for coming out, I appreciate it. I want you to go to court to get justice. We're suing the state of Florida 
for, for past discrimination for not allowing Garrett and David to fight. We're also suing them for the opportunity to fight in the future, to earn that right to fight. This is not going to stand. Unable to fight in his home state, Garrett took his dream to a state that would accept it, Missouri. This future fight is between some individuals who have been denied their opportunity to fight uh, over the years. And when we're letting it happen here, we're going to make history tonight. So let's give it up for these guys one more time. You've got to be an idiot. You've got to be brain damaged to think that I really want my son getting punched in the face. He will deny, but he's very stubborn. He doesn't wear clothes that he doesn't want to wear. He doesn't cut his hair the way he doesn't want to cut it. He doesn't do anything that he doesn't want to do. I mean, he's his own man. just getting acquainted with what people with Down syndrome can really do. It's Garrett's generation that is really proving this. He's definitely a pioneer as an adaptive athlete in mixed martial arts. And I think it's his hope that he sees more people come behind him. You did it. I love you, Mom. I love you, too. You did it. I'm a fan. This is I am. Only thing I want to be it's a fire. In 2014, Garrett was named Self-Advocate of the Year by America's National Down Syndrome Society. And the judge in their case ruled that the state of Florida had to abide by the Americans with Disabilities Act. I think fighting in justice makes me stronger. More powerful. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Let's fight! Here we go! Great job on that, Alex and Greg. And what a great story. I can't call him Garrett. I gotta call him G-Money. And G-Money, teaching us all how to live. What a father. What a son. And Brian Gumbel, shame on you. Listen to yourself. I want to send that soundbite of him to himself. His condescension. His look at people with disabilities as if somehow they're not entitled to play sports. 
And by the way, Brian Gumble makes a living from sports. Great storytelling here on Our American Stories, life-affirming storytelling you'll get here each and every day. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.